This podcast is dedicated to the Dakota. We are very grateful for the people who take care of the land on which our community is built. Thank you. Welcome back to the Students' Co-op Memory Journal. It is episode 10. It is February 2022. Just a couple days ago on Groundhog Day, I interviewed Jerry Dammel, Jerome Dammel, who moved into the co-op in 1956. He lived there for a few years. He became treasurer. Let's hear all about his time at the co-op, the Amigo Club, in the 50s and 60s. I graduated from high school in 1956 and moved uh, on a summer job, so I was able to afford to go to college and then moved in with my sister in Minneapolis, started going to school at the university, and my brother-in-law decided that uh, he wanted to terminate our relationship, I guess, is to put it mildly. So I was looking for a place to stay. And my friend uh, from St. Claude, Jerry Middlestead, who I think you have a picture of, I don't know how he heard about it, but I went over to visit him and ask him if there was room. Yeah. He said they were full. So we talked about it a little bit, and he said, well, let me talk to some people. And they found out there was a cot in the basement where we stored pop to put in the vending machine. And I said, okay, I'm desperate. I'll uh, take it. So I moved into that basement storage room. That was the fall of uh, 1956 until openings uh, appeared next year, the following year. And I stayed in there until the following year and uh, I moved into a, when an opening, some of the GIs moved out. And I think Walford was the president. Uh, Royal Gustafson was a businessman. And uh, the following year, 1957, he suggested that uh, I consider being the business manager. And uh, became business manager then in uh, 57 or 58. I think it was 57. What was your personal business? Were you... Head to the grindstone students just trying to make grades, or were you excited to live independently from your parents? Uh, probably a, a mix of uh, people that had different. There was a, a, a perpetual fuck euchre card game going. I think those students were not too serious. <laughs> the rest of us, especially the, the group from St. Cloud, I came from St. Cloud, and uh, Tom Linskog was there from St. Cloud, Jerry Middlestead was there from St. Cloud. Uh, Gary Rodens for a while, Ed Opitz, who uh, joined a fraternity very quickly. Uh, those of us uh, from St. Cloud were serious students. Did any of you know each other from uh, elementary school or high school? Mostly high school. I knew Jerry Middlestead from uh, elementary school. Progressively, younger and younger people move in and older and older people move out. There might be some cultural difference noticed between people as as that shift happens uh well i came from a very dysfunctional family so i was the only one that pursued higher education after high school i'm not sure if that's what you're getting at or uh, that's actually that was actually going to be my next question which is kind of a hard question and i wanted you know i want the podcast to be mostly uplifting but yeah if anyone came from a difficult family life you know maybe the co-op was that was it maybe some kind of sense of belonging and uh, it was yeah it, it uh, was I, I you know rapidly formed friendships with everybody there 
especially as a business manager, I had to interface with everyone frequently. And they accused me of having a Cadillac fund. What does that mean? That they, I was siphoning off money for my Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> Were you? Uh, it was impossible to do that because I got audited frequently with, not that I would have considered it, but audited my books every uh, periodically. Thank you for keeping honest books. <laughs> so the co-op was kind of, it felt like a safe and healing place, maybe. And very uh, uh, organized. We had, you know, I don't know how this evolved, but uh, everybody had a job. I'm taking out the garbage, uh, passing out clean sheets periodically, washing dishes, uh, bathroom cleaning. And once a year, we would have a house cleanup where we'd wash all the windows, uh, do a deep cleaning on the stove and the refrigerator, you know, that sort of thing. Wow. That's, that's very cool to know about. Do you know if the sheets were kind of thrown into like a fraternity partners association and, and you'd get clean sheets back from them? Or do you remember if that was kind of like washed on site or? I think it was, we, someone collected them and, and washed them and returned them to us. I'd, you know, just pay for the laundry bill. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Clean laundry delivered periodically. I'm not sure if it was, I hope it was weekly, but it might've been monthly. <laughs> <laughs> Do anything else you recall about just general little things like that, like how, you know, pots and pans were done or the refrigerator or? I recall we had a machine that uh, peeled the potatoes. Dishes were done manually. Can we go back to that potato peeler? What what did that look like? This automatic potato peeler? Like um, half the size of a garbage can, I guess. And you had some kind of a agitator in there with a uh, rough side. That would just agitate the potatoes and peel off the skins, probably used very frequently. So then you had to maybe empty out the, the yeah, skins. Yeah, the skins and, and yeah, wash the potatoes. And I'm not sure who, if Nettie, our cook, uh, did that for us, or I don't think that was one of the house duties. That's pretty amazing because I recall pictures that I saw from co opers before the students' co op existed in the 19. 19- 30s i want to say and it was men with a knife just sitting around peeling potatoes oh. yeah that that sounds like a kp duty in the in the military yeah i can see where that would not be popular was the korean war still felt were people talking about military events in vietnam and southeast asia we had veterans that lived there but i don't recall a lot of discussion about uh, world events we had regular Social events, we had a or winter dance, I'm not sure which. We had a spring picnic. And, you know, those kinds of things, like you were talking about before, got people into like a one big family. The things we all did together periodically against the wishes of the university. We'd go around, collect a dollar from each person and buy a keg of beer and have a weekend party. Wow, cool. What, what Do you remember if there was like a brand of beer that was preferred or something there's a liquor store down on university and central that didn't check ids get a keg of beer i can remember once after a spring cleaning or a cleanup weekend we had a little extra money or more than was needed for a keg so we bought an extra strong beer called glickstite 
And needless to say, we had a lot of squirrely people that night. <laughs> That's amazing. Was it 18 or 21 that the age was needed? It must have been, I was 18 at the time, so it must have been 21 that was the legal age. Yeah, that sounds about right then. Okay. It was the, uh, the ex-GIs that lived there that played poker on weekends and got us young pups interest they would be buying beer and they'd say oh taste a little see how you like it oh. and my friend jerry middlestead and i were playing cards with them we got a little squirrely after a glass or two of beer and started giggling like uh, crazy and <laughs> from then on it was something we did regularly <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think that some of the GIs might have been, I don't know, coping within modern language, like post-traumatic stress and just trying to like have a good time. Didn't get that impression at all. They just seemed to be there because they had the GI Bill. And I'm not sure if several that became doctors, uh, George Morgan, I think you've heard that name. He was counselor. Uh, we didn't have house mothers or or anything like that, but the re- university required a counselor be named and so he became a dentist. So there were some serious GIs. Uh, I'm not sure what Dr. Walford, uh, what he became, but he must have been something if he had a doctor's title. Yeah, wow. So I noticed that in the directories, there was a, oftentimes a counselor, and, and sometimes it mentioned that they were uh, specializing in yeah, like chemistry or this or that. Did they have to live at the house then? We chose somebody from the house to fill that obligation. You know, I had to talk them into it because it was extra duty that nobody needed on top of their studying requirements. Yeah, for sure. So it sounds like the like a lot of people were going after doctorates or degrees, that sort of thing. We had a president, secretary, a counselor, and none of those positions were uh, paid. My business manager uh, position, I got free room and board. Okay. So you were the kind of like the one paid employee besides the house cook. Right. Wow. That is interesting. Yeah. I think that's like fluctuated over the years, according to my studies. So uh, were there other avenues of special accomplishment you wanted to be recognized for? Like good skill at hobbies or something like that? The thing I remember most was after four years of schooling at the Institute of Technology. I was uh, studying to be an electrical engineer. The university and their infinite wisdom decided that engineers were not very good citizens. They needed more liberal arts courses, history, psychology, sociology. So they required us to take an extra year of study to get our bachelor's degree in engineering. So they increased your degree to like five years? Yes. The credits required to graduate. Oh, that's obnoxious. Huh, weird. And then they terminated it after one year. <laughs> the experiment didn't work at all. <laughs> they got too much grief from the students or, or what, but it went by the wayside. Did you more often call it Amigo Club, the students co-op, or the co-op? Uh, Amigo Club, I think, was the most informal title. The students co-op was the formal title when we were uh, interviewing people to come live there. And when you interviewed people, it sounds like it was kind of a group affair. There's one person in front of a crowd of people asking them questions. It became, I think, just that anybody who was interested 
you know, if and recommended by a current member, was accepted pretty readily. There weren't very many uh, stringent rules about whether you had money in the bank to join the club or anything like that. Although we did ask a couple of people to leave over the years because they couldn't pay their bills. Yeah. Was it automatic eviction or was the eviction a discussion? It was a discussion because nobody wanted to be the bad guy. And I certainly didn't want that job as business manager. So the, the president, Tom Linscock, was talked into doing that. So let's see. I'm told that a kind of Amigo Club logo was painted on the east wall of the common areas. Was that area used for a house radio or a house television or some other media? Maybe a record player? That must have been after my time that the logo was painted. But uh, we had two main rooms on the first floor. The big one was in the front of the house, and that had a big green couch and a fireplace and a table where you pick up your mail. The middle room was a TV room, and we did resurface the floor in that room at one time, sanded it down and revarnished it. So it was a TV room? was a TV room, and we gathered there Sunday nights to watch Paladin, I think, was the, the rage at that time. Wow. What, what show was that about? A, a cool Western cowboy who played poker and usually fast-talked his way out of bad situations. That's awesome. That sounds like sounds reminiscent of Maverick or something like that. Oh, that, it, that's what it was, Maverick. I'm confusing it with another. Are you familiar with Maverick? Yeah, I watched that remake with Mel Gibson, I think it was. Oh, <laughs> Very popular. Yeah, no, that was that was a he's a funny character. Okay, so let's see here. Back oh, became uh, more uh, student rooms. We didn't have a house mother. So you were the generation that turned that into study rooms. That that first floor extension. No, that was prior. That was already study rooms by the time I moved in. And you said that fireplace. I totally forgot about the fireplace because we weren't allowed to use it when I moved in. Were you were you using it as a fireplace? No, I don't recall ever using it as a fireplace. Yeah, that makes sense because students, you know, sure work to keep it clean. <laughs> yeah. Chop firewood. <laughs> yeah, chopping firewood for the during the winter. Yeah, where would you even get that in at the U? I guess. I'm trying to remember if we did other things. Like, you know, I re- resurfaced the TV room floor. We added uh, wainscot around the the lunchroom in the basement. It's a, about a four foot level of from the floor up four feet. It's just a paneling that went around the whole. Oh, it's like a tall baseboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if we did some electrical work, you know, originally I think the uh, lighting was gas. Maybe I'm not sure whether the fireplace was actually used. Uh, but uh, when I lived there, they had a boiler in the basement heating hot water pipe throughout the building radiators. Yeah, we actually still have a boiler. It was replaced, I think, in the 90s with a modern boiler system. I got elected to be the boiler engineer. The city required that a boiler engineer live there. So I had to go take a test, flunked the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have to balance the, the system and, and make sure all the radiators were working in the rooms? didn't get to that point. I would just uh, let it do its thing. I guess if there was any balancing, people that lived in the individual rooms uh, opened the valve more or less to get more or less heat into the rooms. 
wow, maybe the so-called modern system was less sophisticated <laughs> because we, you know, one room would be blasting steam. Oh. And cold. <laughs> Thinking it must have been in gas because I certainly don't remember shoveling coal or anything. In fact, there was a room down, must have been in back of the boiler room that was a, uh, maybe a 10 foot cubicle. And uh, we set up a ping pong table there and had a lot of ping pong tournaments. So it must have been the coal room of, and originally was the back room uh, for tools and things uh no it it just seemed to be pretty empty we didn't use it for storage or anything never considered uh, putting anybody's study room there it was i don't think it had little or no windows the university already had vastly different groups as far as i was looking at it socialist organizations military organizations fraternities uh, did you have debates no, I don't. I uh, can't speak on that. Did some intramural sports uh, things. Right across the street was the armory. We would uh, get done with our classes, and before Nettie had dinner ready, we'd go across the street, choose up sides, and play touch football. I wrestled in high school, so I volunteered uh, to start a intramural wrestling group. And found out I was completely out of shape after high school. But we did a lot of playing football and basketball and handball over at the football stadium. I read about those IM sports. I was wondering if that was something that was kind of like followed by the university. You, you kind of had to do something official with it. You couldn't just like go play or, or you just you wanted to do something more organized. The only involvement with the university would be that they made uh, the sports facilities available. We frequently play uh, basketball on Saturday mornings, handball on Saturday mornings, football, and I don't think we got involved with baseball much, but football over on the, uh, the fields north of the railroad tracks, I think it was. So I had to schedule time uh, to make use of those facilities. That's so cool. That's, that's so cool. You were organizing sports. It's really neat. And it was just something you know, everybody wanted to do. It wasn't a requirement. Did your um, cohort, I'll say, you know, like your generation of co-opers, did you have Black or African-American or Indian, you know, applicants, that kind of thing? None that I can think of. The diversity I recall is uh, Finlanders from the Iron Range, uh, Bohunk, we called uh, a veterinarian student, Charlie Kubish, and uh, Wade Himes. We called him Bohunk, so I don't, know, I don't know why. There was diversity from that standpoint. I don't think we had any sportsmen in the house that were on, on the university varsity teams. We had uh, several people from the Iron Range, for instance, and Western Minnesota. You know, everybody melded in together and didn't form little cliques or anything. Yeah, yeah, like everyone belonged. Unless you consider the perpetual euchre game a, a click. <laughs> and, yeah, some might. Those, <laughs> like I say, those were not serious students. So was there any sense that the House cared about flattening the equal rights curve or anything like that? You know, were they getting involved in activism? No, we weren't uh, getting involved in activism at all. I think we were all just had our, our nose to the grindstone uh, trying to get through uh, four years of college. I am a volunteer, but I don't have the vision to be a, a leader in causes or, or, or things like that. So I hope you can get a better feel for that from other people. Oh, okay. Thank you. That's a good tip. We were 
idealistic in a sense, I guess, but uh, but uh, not to the point where we would join protests or or try to champion a cause. What was your idealism like? Oh, we worked together very closely to the degree that we thought we could, you know, buy a boat together or do something together. Yeah, buy a, yeah, we could work together. Like we'd get invited to one person's family cabin and uh, do boating on weekends. After we graduated, we could uh, join a group and rent an apartment together. And once we got into those situations, we found out it was a little more difficult than we first thought. Wow, that is so cool to hear about. Yeah, it, 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 the co-op inspires people grouping up, but, it, but it's hard to make spin-off projects, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, five of us got uh, rented an apartment together after we graduated because we all got jobs in the Twin Cities and uh, lived there for a year or two until I got assigned a field assignment in East Patterson, New Jersey. I worked for a control data company. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It was uh, the first company that built a transistorized computer. Wow. IBM at the time was the only computer manufacturer, and they had vacuum tubes to run their computer. When I was still at the co-op, there was a guy from St. Cloud, Harry Gaples, that worked for Control Data, and he was going around trying to get people to buy stock in the company at a dollar a share. Yeah. And all of us students were in debt, didn't have money to buy stock, even if it was that cheap. But it turns out that people who bought stock at a dollar a share became multimillionaires. I'll be darn. Yeah, because right, the transistor computer, holy buckets. Yeah, Seymour Cray was our resident uh, genius. He built the first supercomputer, actually. Whoa. <laughs> Ran rings around IBM. Oh, I could tell you stories about them. That's probably Please right. do. Well, they were very nasty, is the word that comes from. They <laughs> would drive other people out of business that were competing with them. Like if they found a, a small company that one example is a a card punch reader. Mm-hmm. They would drive them out of business by saying, we're going to keep you in court for years. We got millions of dollars and we can hire millions of lawyers and, and uh, ruin you. So it's best that you sell out to us. So they bought the uh, Hollerith uh, card punch reader and actually sold machines and card stock. They didn't let the, the Germans manufacture their own card stock. They sold the machines and the cardstock to Hitler. And Hitler found out, holy cow, I can, I can keep track of every Jewish German in the country mm. and doing a, doing a census and uh, know exactly where they live so we can round them up. Holy buckets. And he, wow. Tom Watson got the Iron Cross from Hitler as a reward. And then Hitler went on to use that technology to keep track of every tank, every rifle, every bullet, every soldier. And he just uh, had a very efficient operation as a result of that. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's horrible and amazing. Tom Watson finally got a lot of flack about his doing business with Germany and was embarrassed to wear his Iron Cross. So he finally had to give that up. But he still continued his predatory tactics with control data. He had his salesman tell the customers that, oh, we've got something much better. We've got one that's going to be available next year. 
Mm. And when you're spending millions of dollars on a, a computer, you can wait a year before you uh, make the commitment. Right. So we did not sell a computer for two years because of his predatory tactics. Finally took them to court and got a huge settlement where IBM had to give up their service bureau, which was a massive computer complex that sold computer services to the public. That lawsuit was uh, just a tremendous help to control data. Wow. Control data was kind of where you went right after... No, you went to the you went to the apartment after the co-op, and then you got hired into control data. I was working for control data while I was living at the apartment. Wow, that is so cool. That ten is cool. months after I got hired by control data, we, I spent ten months in school learning the ins and outs of uh, computers and uh, transistors and how they all work together. So as we sold computers, we'd get field assignments to accompany a computer to the field and keep it running efficiently for the customer. I wish I knew enough to ask you the significance of changing a vacuum tube to a transistor, but I'm afraid I'm not an engineer. <laughs> well, size and speed, vacuum tube was the size of a, maybe a coffee cup, something like that. And a transistor was smaller than a thimble, the first ones. Wow. And they became smaller than a pinhead, and now they're smaller than a micrometer. You can't even measure them, they're so tiny. Speed, reliability, and science. The original supercomputer occupied a room, a 12 by 12 room. Now you could probably get supercomputer power on your cell phone. Yeah. Would you say that these kinds of engineering discussions were at all happening in the house? That was after we graduated. Okay. We discussed uh, probably uh, different engineering degrees at each. We had a variety of uh, in civil engineering, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, chemical engineering, mining engineering, a lot of uh, engineering students and uh, several uh, medical dentists, doctors, uh, veterinarians, at least one lawyer. We had dedicated students. So we're coming through a common area and there are people milling about. What might you see there uh, besides that card game? It was pretty much unoccupied. The only time the common rooms were occupied were uh, Sunday night watching TV, uh, Saturday night having parties. We'd have a lot of people milling about in the common rooms, listening to music and making out on the green couch. <laughs> <laughs> the green couch. Ooh. The story was if that green couch could talk, it would have <laughs> many stories to tell. I'll try to get an interview with that green couch if I can find it. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's still there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So on the second floor, that was all study rooms. Second floor was a uh, bathroom, shower room, toilets uh, at the top of the stairs. And then three, four, at least five study rooms with three to four mm -hmm. students each. On the third floor, we had uh, one large study room that must have four or five people in and then the two rooms in the back was it the front or the back i think it was the back of the house uh, two small rooms where I had two students each and so where, where, where were people sleeping on the third floor was a large room the dormitory where we had uh, double bunks there must have been 34 to 40 beds Almost sounds like military style. Yeah, that's. I think that's 
where why they called it the dormitory. You called it a sleeping room. Did that work out? Did people snore? Did people, you know, were how did how what were the challenges and the benefits of that? Uh, the challenges were that uh, a lot of people like to sleep in a cold room, so they'd open the windows winter or summer. We did not have air conditioning, so I certainly had to have the windows open in the summer. But uh, it seems to me they were open a lot of time in the winter, too. Yeah. So then you just have to pile on the blankets? I don't think we had much complaints or many complaints about snoring. Although I recall one guy, when we wanted to get a team together to go over and play basketball, he'd still be sleeping. But we needed one more person. <laughs> we're going to let him sleep. Everybody had to, you know, grab their sheets and take them down to the back door, handed out new sheets to make their beds. Wow. Many people would wake up and maybe get fresh sheets kind of all around the same time? or Yeah, probably. Uh, I'm not sure when they were distributed, Saturdays or, or something. And you were on your own when you didn't have anybody to make your bed. You had to make your own bed, of course. Yeah, for sure. And then the study rooms... Those would anyone ever say, you know what, I'm just going to fall asleep in the study room, or, or they didn't have locks? No, they were open. Occasionally, if something would get too old and you have to throw it out, we'd go to the uh, oh, Salvation Army or somebody to buy somewhere to buy desks or tables or chairs. Did anyone play piano in the living room? I, think, I don't think so. Uh, there was a piano there. And we had a, a record player. We had old Tom Lear record. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah. Wasn't he, you know, poisoning pigeons in the park? Or? Poisoning pigeons in the park. And yeah. He prepared the Boy Scout and watching song. That was hilarious. Gordon Thurston, the doctor that I sent you a picture of, he played a guitar. I don't recall anyone else playing any musical instruments. We didn't have anyone proficient enough playing the piano to have a sing-along. Did people try to hold other events at the co-op? Um Religious gatherings, performances, poetry, impromptu stuff? No, none of that. When your fellow members told stories about the house to other university students and things like that, um, what did they say? It would usually be in the context of trying to get someone to move in and talk about the good food, the inexpensive room and board, and the camaraderie, I guess. What was your relationship to the fraternities? Did you guys feel safe on the back porch? There were no break-ins. We would uh, would not uh, socialize with them at all. Made fun of them in a way that, because you know they were the elite guys that had been born with a silver spoon in their mouth. So we were the poor people who could barely afford to go to the university. Wow. Okay, I see. Uh, I'm sure we must have had uh, white uh, kitchen dish towels to dry the dishes. Other than that, I don't recall any like dish rags or how we washed the dishes. I was absolved from that since I was a business manager. <laughs> I didn't get involved in the other house chores. So, so di- dishes was a chore. It wasn't like everyone washes their own dish. It was kind of like piles of dishes and then the dish chores did them. Right. Yeah. And I'm trying to think if everybody had a job or if we gave credits for doing jobs because I can't recall the, the uh, card players doing much at all. <laughs> oh, man. If they skipped out in my generation, they'd probably receive fines because everyone had to do something. I remember once uh, Maddie Jorgensen got sick and I, as business manager, felt, I don't know why, ought to put a meal on for the house. <laughs> so <laughs> I went out and bought 
uh, dozens of fish sticks <laughs> and cooked them <laughs> and uh, got so many complaints that I dropped the whole idea and said, we'll just give you a credit those days and you can go get your own meals. Oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry that didn't go over well. I love fish sticks. <laughs> yeah, that went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> and I, no one asked me to do it. I just felt I obligated. <laughs> yeah. I should do it. Yeah, right? Because the food was missing. What kind of things would she serve? Every day were fresh rolls, delicious fresh rolls. Frequently uh, uh, chicken, potatoes, mashed potatoes, gravy. I can't remember. What other probably was uh, hamburgers. I, the only thing I really remember is chicken I, for some reason. Must have been uh, frequently on the menu. How did she appear? She lived about a mile away and would walk to work, uh, come through the back room. Uh, we were all in class by then by the time she got there. She probably got there around nine o'clock in the morning and started baking biscuits and, and cooking whatever she ordered. She'd do all the ordering. Just a very good relationship. Wow, that is so cool. Yeah, After I graduated and was sent to the field in East Patterson, New Jersey, I kept track of her and found out that she had died. So that was about, well, 62, I would say, 63 at the latest. So that was kind of sad. Yeah, that is sad. Did you get a chance, anyone at the house get a chance to have conversation with her? Or did she stick around for small talk after making the meals? I think she would leave about supper time. I remember once it was snowing out, a blizzard out or something, and I volunteered to give her a ride home. And I made an illegal left turn on 10th Avenue and got pulled over. And she was trying to insist on paying my fine. And of course, we didn't allow her to do that. But usually she just walked winter or summer, although in, in winter, we did have a lot of volunteers that would give her a ride. I'm not sure if they ever picked her up in the morning until everybody was in school by then. Wow, that's so sweet. So I was going to ask if she parked, but it sounds like she just walked. That's she just walked. I got to know her pretty well. Whenever I would go down to Dinky Town for something, I'd ask her if she needed anything. And once in a while, she'd have something that uh, she needed. Uh, and then we decided to give her a raise one year. And I messed up calculating the taxes or something and didn't realize it. But after a week, she said, Jerry, I'd like to go back to my old salary. <laughs> oh, no. I had shortchanged her somehow. And I had to go back and fix that. Finally did get to the point where she did actually get a raise. Oh, good for you. Thank you for doing that. Then. <laughs> How was the parking situation in the back? Did you have just a few parking spots? It was uh, very full. Uh, there was probably room for bumper to bumper on both sides. Frequently, you'd have to move several cars to get yours out. Yeah, it was like a puzzle for sure. Okay. That was uh, a problem because everybody wanted to, wanted to keep their car there. How was transportation? How many co-opers owned cars? I would say a dozen. You could get a dozen cars in there. I would be surprised. Yeah, yeah. I think it was about that. Maybe. How many co-opers owned bicycles? None. That None. Was when, when I saw pictures, or I'm not sure, people talking about bicycles and, and the bicycle fad craze today, whatever, I think, wow, that was something else. Nobody owned bicycles. We walked every place on campus we went. 
Wow. So it was pretty much just driving, walking, streetcars, and what, buses maybe? Yeah, buses occasionally. But wow. just for campus, it wasn't even buses. Uh, although the veterinarian medicine students, they must have had a bus to go over there. So there was no eccentric student cross-country skiing across campus or... or no. uh... <laughs> there was always, seemed to be always a parking problem, even in those days, all over campus. I just remembered at the first year, I think it was, I had an old 48 Chevy Coupe, or was it Mercury Coupe? Anyway, I had a car, and I would park down on the river flats, down by the river, and it was just a flat open area. Yes. You could park there? You could even get a car there? Yeah, 25 cents a day to park down there. And then finally... After the following year, I decided, what do I need a car for? After my brother-in-law terminated our <laughs> my rooming relationship, decided I didn't need a car anymore. You didn't actually move into the co-op right away. You were starting classes before you moved to the co-op. Uh, yes, I was fortunate to get a job with Honeywell uh, my, after I graduated from high school as a draftsman. And they paid me the unimaginable wage, $250 a month, which wow. was like heaven to me. So I was able to save money enough to start going to the university. Tuition was like $35 or something. Wow. And yeah, and we found that ad saying that it was $15.50 a week, which works out to be what, like like $62 a month? Yeah, 65 is what I recall. We may have billed it that way, 65 a month rather than weekly. I guess in early 1952, the original plinth or facade fell off the front pillars and was replaced with this wired cement stuff called permastone. Did anyone you lived there with um, hold on to some institutional memory or sense of why that happened? No, people that were there, the, the XGIs that were there when I moved in had, you know, probably wouldn't have been there in 52 since I moved in in 56. In September 1957, I guess the front stairway was enclosed, you know, in quotes. Um, And I'm guessing this might be the time that a fence was installed on the front porch. Was there a fence around that elevated front porch when you lived there? I could look at the pictures, but I want to say railing rather than fence. Yeah, yeah, railing. That's better. Yeah, it was there when I moved in, yeah. Okay, thanks for that. Everything that you're saying is amazing, like names and events. It's really, really great. Thank you. Were there any other discussions about how the house would or should change in some way? It just seemed magical the way when one generation graduated and the next people came in that a business manager was found somehow or other and kept the, kept the money flowing. So with that sense of camaraderie in the house, did the house aspire to have any any collective accomplishment did 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 the did the house wish to impress anyone not uh positively <laughs> we we used to i can recall us making uh, homecoming displays with a uh, tongue-in-cheek poking fun at the fraternities rather than a serious homecoming display fraternities and sororities would decorate their, their houses to welcome back their alum- alumni the, you know almost like a, a float in a parade I can't think of the, the saying we came up with about something derogatory about the opposition football team. <laughs> they spanked the, the team or something to that effect. I think 
we may have served coffee and donuts if alumni showed up during homecoming. Oh, that's cool. Did you have any congeniality with any other co-ops like independent men's co-op on St. Paul campus? No, I don't recall you knowing that the, and the women's co-op you mentioned, I uh, didn't know that they even existed. Oh, like the Winchell cottages. Yeah. The only connection would have been if, uh, if they would have been using Midland as their mortgage company or if they were associated with Midland in some way. I'm trying to figure out when women besides the house mother or cooks started living at the house or visiting so frequently that they were known to many members. But it sounds like women were at this point still not allowed above the first floor. Yeah, it was maybe five years later, I got assigned to go overseas to a tracking station. So I was out of touch for a couple of years. And I heard rumors when I got back that co-op was now co-ed. And I you know, just thought, oh, interesting. I didn't think much about it one way or the other. That's when I you know, contacted friends who had lived there and socialized with them. And we started getting together for homecoming dinners and things like that. December of uh, 64, I think. Wow. So did you see any changes to that? Did you see, you know, guys trying to sneak up girls to their (laughs) study room? I think that even occurred, especially in summer when we were not in classes. Things were pretty freewheeling. I think Nettie was not cooking in summer and everybody was kind of on their own. So I would not surprise me at all if if the second floor rule was, was not enforced. I see. So maybe there were secretive co-living situations. <laughs> Whenever there was a party on the weekend. I guess in 1957, the U of M opened Bailey Hall, its first co-ed residence. So that might put pressure on other residences to consider co-ed. Oh, like a big dormitory. And they had a, a men's wing and a women's wing. And, and they would allow, you know, mingling in in like a in a in a big big open probably cafeteria style area they created those windshield cooperative cottages for women adjacent to San, uh, Sanford Hall at the time and then and then they created like a men's co-op it, like that you know that where the big airplane hangar was across the street from the co-op ah uh, yes uh, that was like a track and field with enclosed oh. in a in a hangar is it called the field house yeah before they put that there there was four big buildings that were men's cottage or men's co-ops, but it only lasted for like 10 years in the 1930s or something. And then they demolished them. I wonder if they felt they weren't needed or weren't working the way they envisioned. I, I imagine they weren't working how they envisioned because it, at some point they were entirely occupied by women. And then shortly after that, they were demolished. And then the field house moved in later. Um, anyway, I heard that during the 1950s, there was some sort of unspoken cultural backlash against cooperative residences like Amigo Club because of the feeling that they were too communist or too countercultural or something. Do you remember feeling anything about this or hearing sentiments like this? Only from maybe people that looked at uh, poor furnishings that they looked down on us and, and you know, may, may have been bad-mouthing us for some reason. Right, right. I had that feeling. That- it sounds like water off a duck's back, though. <laughs> So as treasurer, what sort of business or financial relationships did you manage for the house? Uh, I had to collect the money, of course, and go around and rag on people if they weren't paying their bills, take the money to the bank, deposit the money, pay the checks, keep accurate books, and 
do audits, send the books to the uh, Midland Co-op periodically. And I wasn't sure at the time, they had our mortgage, of course, but whether they had some, it was just an informal requirement to do the books or if it was a legal requirement. Anyway, they do the books. And I recall once I was a penny off and they searched and searched and charged me $65 to find that penny. No. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Instead of writing it out. Were they also known as Midland Wholesale Co-op? Never heard that word wholesale. But this was the one with MD Zeddies. Does that name sound familiar to you? Doc Zeddies? Although I did get to know a, the accountant that looked at her books, but can't recall the name now because it was so the contact was so infrequent. What was the most challenging thing about being treasurer? I guess collecting the money, trying to determine whether we had enough money to take on a project like the wainscoting or doing the annual cleaning, house cleaning. We had to buy materials and, and getting the audits done on a timely basis. I had the benefit of getting free room and board. But I still had to find ways of getting my tuition and, and books, textbooks and everything. So I had at one time, I had three jobs. Great suffered that, that time. Uh, but besides being a business manager, I had to, had to find other ways to, to pay the bills. Uh, what were the most rewarding aspects? Was it good for a CV or resume? Since uh, companies we interviewed came to campus and were eager to hire us. I don't think it mattered one way or the other whether I had business manager experience. Uh, did you take part in any training process for the next treasurer? Just informal. When I took over, I sat down for a half hour and primer on where to enter the cash that comes in, where to take it to the bank, where to pay the bills, etc. And so I did that when I was uh, outgoing treasurer. And nothing uh, very uh, formal which kind of amazed me that the house was still running. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how informal and it's, and it's still been going. So it sounds like it was just kind of entrusted to the board or the president or just good documentation. Yeah, we, we knew from experience what, what the previous officer did and what business manager did and then uh, formalized it when, when it became necessary. Very cool. What were the other social groups besides like intramural sports, um, engineers, the, 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 the card players that were perpetually at the card table? I think I told you we had uh, yearly parties, well, work days, uh, a formal, formal party where we would hire a hall and uh, you know, wear suits and ties and, and uh, have dances, hire a band to play. Not even sure how we financed those. I think we just collected money from the people that uh, attended. So the Amigo Club would actually go get some hall somewhere on campus and, and fill it with co-opers and friends? Not necessarily on campus. Uh, we found a country club that was a reason, reasonably priced. And that cool. was winter. I think we call it the winter formal or the spring formal, I think it was. How far away or how close would that be? Like, was it driving distance or did you have to kind of like, was it a retreat? Yeah, it was driving distance, maybe just north, north of uh, St. Paul a little bit. Country club. That's super fun. How about small news or local news um, changes that you were seeing in the Twin Cities or in the university? In the Twin Cities, besides the traffic, 
besides the traffic? Just from my own standpoint, the, the fact that I went to work for Control Data, the company was formed, it, uh, it flourished, became the first supercomputer builder, and died. doesn't exist anymore. What happened to it? Uh, Seymour Cray, our resident genius, decided that he didn't like all the politics, so he moved his research lab to Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, where his dad was a civil engineer back in the day. Anyway, he tried to get away from everybody coming and asking him questions every day. Well, in order to produce his new computer, they had to go to Wisconsin to ask him questions. That lasted for a year or two, and he said, enough is enough. I'm going to quit control data and form my own company. So he formed his own company called Chippewa Labs. And that left us without a resident genius. So slowly, people tried to fill his shoes, but the computers they designed never caught on. And finally, the, the company just uh, kind of settled into the dust, I guess you'd say. How would you characterize these like uh, special geniuses that a company can form around? They had the, the vision. In his case, it was using transistors instead of vacuum tubes. And he had the vision to be able to design these transistors into a, a thing that could compute, add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and do it very quickly. And that, in the case of computers, and I think that's the, uh, the thing a, an entrepreneur would have to have is a vision of something, a, pro- a new product, a new service that would have to uh, do the same. And that could convince other people that his vision was doable. I kind of got the impression that in this case, it was the other way around. William Norris was the business genius, and he talked Seymour Cray into coming to control data with him from UNIVAC. And so they got together and brought some visionaries in other areas like uh, human resources and formed a very, very progressive company. You, you saw and oversaw Quite, quite the explosion of computing. Uh, what are the most interesting things that you saw developed that are still used today? And what do we no longer use? You know, like, I, w- were they saying operating system back in the day to refer to like a, an overarching software on the computer? Oh, yeah. In our day, we were, I'm not sure if you know what a, a single bit is. Is a bit like a one or zero? Boom? One or zero. It's like an on or an off switch. A transistor can go on or off, one or zero, and you need millions of these to form a a multiplication table or a multiplication pyramid, they call it. Oh, but back before that, the things that have changed, when Seymour first designed his first computer called the 1604, he had a massive console. Think of maybe eight of your, your monitors spread around a desk, but they weren't monitors. They were individual switches for each one was one bit. Wow. So you'd enter a 64-bit word into a register and then have it execute that instruction. So you'd do this with the little buttons, little switches. And finally, they connected a teletype to this massive machine and just do, you could type in numbers rather than enter them individually. Then they decided to store that information so they could repeat it over and over. On paper tape, they punch little round holes in paper tape. From there, it went to the IBM Selectric typewriter. 
with the, the golf ball tape Are you familiar with that? Yeah, where it rotates the ball with the... Um... And they decided, hey, we can use magnetic tape. And magnetic disc, we had a, a floppy disc that was like about eight inches in diameter. Then it became a mini disc. And then uh, memory on the computer was a core stack about, well, the original ones were like uh, a cubic foot. And they were little round donuts, magnetic donuts with wires strung through them that you could uh, record and play back memory. It sounds kind of like a cassette tape where it records magnetic tape and then can read it. Yeah, that's, that was the early, early version. And finally, you know, we got, uh, got to the point where you had solid state memory, which with terabytes like what you have on your cell phone now. So the, the transition from paper tape with punch holes and cards, punch cards, uh, was in my lifetime just a dramatic, dramatic change. So I'm trying to imagine a computer reading uh, paper. Were there like little switches that would go, that would kind of like into the holes or? Light, a light and a, and a diode to, to sense the light coming through the hole. And it Whoa. was a real challenge trying to get these punches to punch the holes in the paper accurately. It became a, a constant uh, adjustment every day on these paper tape punches. Right, because if there were any little hanging bits of paper that Chad, didn't make it or Chad. chads stuck in the stuck in the hole yeah, it was a, wow but it amazing happened so fast you know just from one year to the next there'd be a new generation of storage media and you think it was all driven by basically these an occasional an occasional genius would just say all right we're going to put two unrelated things together and it creates this new amazing thing Oh, yeah, the printers became IBM Selectric typewriter printing da, 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 you know, that fast one letter at a time. He invented a thing called drum printers, where every column on the drum, the drum would rotate. Every column on the drum would have a whole alphabet on it. And as, as that letter came up in that row, 136 rows, a hammer would boom, hit the paper against a, a ribbon and form a letter. And it, our first uh, printer could print 166 rows print a minute. Then the Japanese came out with one that printed a thousand lines a minute. And the, the technology was just amazing. Wow. What do you think of today when you think of the co-op? I think that I would like to see it operating again in the way I did when I was there to give new students the opportunities that I had to get an education. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any advice for future co-opers? Maybe formalize the, the transitions between officers and, and business managers. Get a, a written uh, manual, on, especially if we can formalize something with a, with a Midland co-op or somebody that uh, can pass that information from one generation to the next. Yeah. So yeah. Rules and regulations. Is there anything else you wanted to share? The people that I recall, most everybody has had a successful careers. Uh, Dr. Gordon Thurston, the one I sent you a picture of, he uh, became a doctor in a small town in Northern California. I'm not even sure what the name of it was, but he was proud of the fact that he delivered over 3,000 babies. Oh, that's right. Yes. became a well-known, he played in a uh, bluegrass band very intelligent guy 
and he was my friend, my roommate. That is so fun. Phil Nissler, the physicist, he's got a doctor's degree in, in physics, and he has uh, had a very successful career. And Gary Rodin's also had a doctor's degree in physics and worked at the uh, atomic energy labs in that, Mexico or Arizona. Phil was very meticulous. He would bring home his notes from class and transcribe them into this very formal notebook. So yeah, just knowing those people and uh, being exposed to very intelligent people was very, very rewarding. That is so cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to meet with me. Thank you. Kind of milked my brain. I hope uh, hope it was useful. It's hopefully gentle enough that you kind of like are inspired to think of anything. And if anything comes to you later that you want to share, we can always do another little episode or anything. Um, happy to share anything that you want. I to. hope you can get a chance to talk to uh, both Nissler and Chilbert. Me too. Yeah. Well, thank you for the opportunity to, to dump my memory. Thank you so much. Um, I'll be using, yeah, the the modern computing technology that you helped develop to to uh, distribute this to the world. It's so strange now that I can hold on a tiny little chip all the music that I love, hundreds of of musical artists, and um, oh, yeah. but there's still nothing quite like a record. My son is crazy about vinyl. Yeah, vinyl is, technologies come and go, and, and we always want to get more efficient. But I must say that quality of vinyl is so organic and, and so pleasant and, and full. You probably have better hearing than I do. Oh. My hearing aids, uh, where you can appreciate the, the depth. I can appreciate a, a vinyl record, but trying to tune a ukulele is beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Okay, well, thanks again, and uh, yes. good luck with your project. Thank you so much, Jerry. Oh, have, have a good day. You too. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Wow, what an amazing set of changes this world has seen, the co-op has seen. If you'd like to see pictures that Jerry sent in to the album, go to podcast.studentscoop.org and click on album. From there, click on uh, 1960s or late 1950s see a bunch of cool information we have there about early co-opers you can also check out show notes there have a wonderful day